TL Talk Radio, Season 4, Episode 3. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of TL Talk Radio, a podcast with Lynn Feeney-Hatton and Randy Ziegenfuss, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. And I'm Lynn Feeney-Hatton. And this morning, we have a high-energy guest, Susie Pepper Rollins, author of two ASCD books, Learning in the Fast Lane, Eight Ways to Put All Students on the Road to Academic Success, and teaching in the fast lane, how to create active learning experiences. Susie is a passionate lifelong educator whose mission is to create academic success for all learners by embedding instructional practices that create energized, autonomous, focused learners. A national presenter across subject areas, she's the founder of Math in the Fast Lane, an online instructional resource for grades three through eight teachers. In addition, she's embarked on her latest project called myedexpert.com which is a community of education experts who share research-based work with schools. So welcome to the podcast, Susie. Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're excited to have you based on our pre-show conversation. You are full of energy. And uh, we enjoyed reading both of your books, Learning in the Fast Lane and Teaching in the Fast Lane. And that's what we want to talk about today. So to start us off, tell us a little bit about the two books. Give us some context. Uh, and what are those big questions uh, that uh, motivated you to uh, author these two volumes? And what gaps in educational practice do, you, uh, do they aim to fill? Well, the, you know, when I call things fast lane, it's, it's really about uh, looking for ways to get learners to really catch on better, you know, get their reading up, get them excited about learning, getting motivated. So what I basically look at in both books, the first book's really more process oriented. What can we do in schools a little bit differently? It's a little more global. Uh, the second book is about the actual uh, building of lessons in a different format. I'm not a big fan of checkoff templates. I want us to build these fantastic experiences where students just love coming to school and can't wait for school every day. So I kind of take on some things that maybe we've done for a while in schools. Um, but in question, well, you know, is that really research-based? So when I use my research, I'm looking for things that are really high impact, things that have high effect sizes. For example, in the first book, the very first chapter is on acceleration. Uh, one of the things I did in, in schools is, is kind of rethinking this model of going back and trying to fix everything a student didn't get. Uh, because sometimes there are a lot of things we didn't get. So what we do in acceleration is jump those kids ahead a day before. Look at those prereq skills, get them started on crustaceans, get them started on surface area the day before. I take a look at, for example, how we open class and question maybe are those warm-ups really getting us there? Because we know from research that students learn the most in the first 10 minutes. So I, I really just sort of take apart what we're doing and kind of rebuild it in terms of let's keep the things that are working great and let's look at our frameworks and then look at our lesson planning process as well, which is what the second book does, is how do we make these experiences where students are doing, you know, look, here's what we talk about. Still today, if the research is to be believed, 80% of a kid's day is sitting and listening. How do kids not learn very well? Sitting and listening. So how can we switch that? And we talk about doing that, but how can we build our, our learning episodes where the kids discover this on their own. So one of the big themes in the second book is 
what do I need to teach? And what can I, and how instead could I create these experiences where they discover this on their own? So that's kind of, you know, how do we get every kid just totally stoked about coming in that classroom? I want them to not just survive school. I want them to love school. So that's sort of the overarching themes, I think. So I think the, uh, this idea of change, we've been having lots of conversations in our school district around changing practice and becoming more reflective about the things that we're doing and how do the things that we do actually model, um, we've been talking about learning beliefs, uh, our beliefs about learning as a community and how do those things that we do in the classroom uh, represent those things. So this idea of you know looking at our practice and what are those things that aren't as effective as they could be and how do we replace them? And I think that that's uh, something I look forward to digging into this conversation on. So in Learning in the Fast Lane, <laughs> you give us eight practices to address gaps and areas, um, you know, certainly student motivation that you've talked about, but also reading vocab and basic skills. You know, why those eight practices and what led you to that combination um, of okay. eight well, practices? I'm sorry, the eight practices are really things, uh, you know, when I think of as the first book is really kind of my secret sauce from consulting in schools of trying to get the achievement up for every student. So typically I'll go in and spend a day looking at our practices and then reflect with the admin team. And where I'm always driven by is I go back to the research of what's going to give us the biggest pop, what's going to help kids really learn faster and better. So that, that's why the eight things are what I consider high impact practices. Like I mentioned, are we going back and whole scale remediating or are we moving these kids ahead? When you talk about student motivation, that's a big component of both books. What makes somebody want to work? What makes you want to work? So I look at those opening minutes, for example, a student is trying to decide right away, is this relevant to my life and can I do it? And so in the opening minutes, I'm looking for a clear learning target, something to really compelling to get us out of the gate of, wow, this is fantastic. And then a feeling of I'm successful right out of the gate. That's why I call those success starters. Mm -hmm. So one of the practices we've put in for years in schools is this sort of passive warm up. Well, it's not that that doesn't have value, but that's one of the things I'm probably going to challenge is could we maybe tweak that into something more compelling rather than get them in their desks, you know, and get everybody. That's a routine and ritual kind of practice. So I guess what I try to do is really look under the hood, you know, of what's happening. Why aren't all of our students really doing well? Uh, and that's where I got those eight, the, in the first book, the eight practice, like you mentioned vocabulary. It is so, it, it is critical for every student. If it's an AP student or a student who's hanging by a thread, it's, it's really daunting how much, uh, how important the vocabulary piece is. So I think I wandered on that, but. <laughs> no, that's okay. Cause that's a great segue into the next question. Let's dig into, uh, that vocabulary practice piece that you, uh, bring out in your book. So vocabulary development is certainly one of those key deficits that we hear from our teachers a lot in our learners. So what does this look like from the learner's perspective and how can uh, what you describe as the strategic vocabulary plan address this gap and how is it more effective than the practices that most teachers commonly use? Well, one of the things I, I'll tell you, one of the things I anchor on is an anchor chart, which is called a tip chart. Uh, we want to, we first, well, let me back up. In vocabulary, let's think about a student's normal day, all right? I go to social studies and we learn about the trail of tears and all this stuff. Then I go to another class and there's more vocabulary. Then I go to science and it's mitochondria and vacuoles and all that. Then I go over here and it's Manet and Monet. Then I go in another room and it's hyperbole and alliteration and somebody killed a mockingbird, right? <laughs> so by the end of the day, we have just pounded 20 words here, 15 words here. That's not doable. 
So the first thing I talk about is let's first get a reasonable list. And number two, it's like spinning plates. We, we want to add a word today. And now tomorrow there are two more words. In other words, we don't want to give kids a whole big list. So what we do is we take that one word on encounter. We have our tip chart and we say, you know what, denominator, that's a brand new word. Let's put that on our tip. Let's get a picture. Why a picture? Again, that's a high impact. That's a high effect size. Let's get a picture for that word. And so we build our vocabulary. We, how do we learn vocabulary with games and conversations and pictures? We play taboo. We, you know, we just keep this. So every day is vocabulary day is where I'm going with this. There are great students who can sort of memorize words and give those back to you on Friday, but they won't remember them the next week. So, and, and when we look at, you know, different students, some students always are coming in with a vocabulary deficit. And what starts happening is we add the academic vocabulary at such a high pace that the text now is too dense for them to read. So maybe I didn't know the conversational vocabulary such as increase and slope or decline, and now you've added trapezoid, you know, in the middle of that sentence. So what we wanna do is just always be working on vocabulary and, and vocabulary is just, uh, should be every day. But where I start is that tip chart. It's, it's one of the easiest things to implement um, and, and something that'll give you the, the most, help kids more than anything is they can look over on the wall and I openly tell kids, you know what? It takes about six times to learn, six exposures to learn one word over time. I'm not expecting you to know adjacent because I just said it. So we have it on our tip chart. One thing that I always go back to, I was working at school with AP kids and these are students that we may make the assumption know the vocabulary, right? And what they told us at the end of this debriefing we did with them is they said, you know what? I can't remember all those words. So if, an, if your AP students are struggling with vocabulary, everybody's struggling with vocabulary. So mm -hmm. it is just something we weave in every day. So we have to make a conscious effort with it, uh, with vocabulary. It's just such a big piece. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing those strategies and reminding us of how important that is. Um, another facet that you talk about a lot is autonomous learning or learner agency. And we've been talking about learner agency and developing a more of a learner-centered um, school for our learners. And you know, what conditions will help learners embrace agency and what strategies can teachers use to create those conditions and give learners greater responsibility and, as you say, motivation to learn? But we know self-efficacy is connected to work, right? So I'm going to work harder if I'm self-efficacious. Self-efficacy is a malleable thing. For example, I can give choices in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, I can do menus and choices where you can circle. Um, the the value of the value of the task increases my motivation. Mm -hmm. um, so what one of the big themes I have in the second book is what do I need to teach and what can they get on their own? Um, mm -hmm. So that's the, for example, if I'm about to teach the the stock market crash, there are some complicated things that I need to teach about the, how prices go up and down, how you have to have a buyer for stock, how and because kids want to know where the money went, right? Now I'm going to turn that over to you. So that's a very careful decision of what do I need to teach? So I'm not pushing information out because what we tend to take on as teachers is let's say social studies or, or science. It's such a big, it's so the concepts are, there's so much, right. That we have to teach. So I tend to go home and create a presentation for them and I read and I edit and I vet sources and I annotate and I do all of this and now I'm pushing it out to you, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the reality is I got to think about how, what do I need to teach? A rule of thumb, even in high school, is the lesson itself shouldn't be more than 10, 11, 12 minutes. So 
a, a college kid remembers 70% of the first 10 minutes, and then it drops off drastically to the 20% range. So I've got to be aware of, of that, even if that teacher talk is still, you know, is, is a problem. But the thing we got to take back now, I use a pie chart lesson. I don't use templates, and that's in the second book. And that shows the time in the process, because we want to be sure that we clear time for kids to practice, work, process, read, share. So it's how we, how we really develop these lessons and what I'm going to teach and what I'm going to let them do. So, so let's pick up on this idea of uh, efficacy and ownership and uh, dig into this idea that you talk about in the book on utilizing stations uh, in instruction. Tell us about the benefits of the strategy, both academic and developing soft skills, uh, and how stations can most effectively be used to give learners this idea of ownership of their learning. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned soft skills because in the, the second book, I open with what are employers looking for? They're looking for someone who can work in a team, think on their feet, solve problems, right? So the world has changed. You know, that's really what they're looking for. We can develop those skills in an active classroom. It's tough to develop those skills in a whole group setting, right? So I want them now stations. I'm a fan of stations, but there are some sort of things we need to be aware of, right? Um, every station needs to help a student meet that learning target. I've got to be clearly focused on the learning target. Another decision is, do I have a teacher station? Because if I have a teacher station, I'm not giving feedback in those other stations. You can build, build leadership by having ambassadors at each station, right? And they can help guide and facilitate. So I'm, I'm, I mean, stations, you know, I really, I'm a fan of them, but we want accountability. I want work to be evident. In the active classroom, we're looking for work to develop from that opening minute to the close, visible work. One thing that I found profound is from Hattie's research, a feedback actually starts with the student work. You know, we think of feedback as me giving something to you, right? But the reality is your work is, what's, is, is what the feedback starts and I'm giving, so giving you feedback based on that. And so is your partner. So I, I need to see that visible work develop from the beginning to the end, which I can do in stations. There are other strategies we can use too. There are a lot of wonderful cooperative techniques and things like placemats, um, and sorting and all the things that I do that are very hands-on where I can, I can be a part of my class and get out of the front of that room. So I don't know if that answered very well, but there are certain, you know, there's a chapter I put on stations in there that, that gives sort of some things to think about when we're implementing them. I learned as an observer walking in buildings that sometimes I could be, I have to be careful when I see stations because I'll walk in and the kids are highly engaged. But then when I would give a little formative assessment, maybe they didn't all get it because they were so pulled into the station activity, but not really focused on the target. Got to watch my rigor um, and have, and you know, and, and those are some of the things that I would sort of advise on those. Mm -hmm. So a way of using stations, not just to occupy students, but making sure it's connected to uh, an outcome that you're looking for. Well, they have to be really thoughtfully planned. Mm -hmm. um, in both books, I talk about standards walls. That's that's one of the things I just wrote an article on this on questioning essential questions. You know, these are things that we wouldn't think to, to question probably, but I use a, a, a concept map so that we actually show our students where you're going for the next three weeks and we check off each learning target. It's a big deal to reach a learning target. So that increases student motivation. So I'm very focused when we use our standards walls, when I walk in a room, I can see exactly where we are. I can see the work we're doing. 
it's so transparent and open to students. Students take pictures of those and they and parents have pictures and we all know it, we're all on the same page. So when I first started and work in a building, the first thing we do is we, we build our walls uh, and then everything comes off of that. So we're crystal clear on our target. And that's uh, that helps with station teaching and everything that we're right on this target. And I may have two targets in play today. Um, so I may have one station that's a review and I may have some other challenging stations. So I just think stations have to be really, we have to put a lot of thought in them. I'm a big fan, um, but I've just, I've learned from my years of experience uh, of some sort of fundamentals we have to follow there. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing that. I'm thinking about it through the context of what do those fundamentals look like in the elementary school, middle school and um, secondary school, thinking that those ideas would apply to all areas. Well, yesterday, for example, I was in a district and I created stations on the branches of government. Now, that's a, a topic that would lend itself to a PowerPoint, right? But what we did is had one station with a card game where they would have questions that increased and then they play a card, a legislative, executive or judicial. Another's an error analysis. Another station was a fact and fib and another station was a sort. And they had an anchor activity that they took around. That was an essay that they completed as they went in. So that was a really, that's a really a good example in my book of, of stations. There's, there's rigor, it's novel. Uh, and, it, and you know, the one of the beauties of stations it is enhances that attention span because we make them about 10 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So then we go to another place and the brain sort of resets because it's something new and innovative here. So that, that's some of the great stuff that we can do with stations. Mm -hmm. So Susie, shifting the conversation a little bit, uh, you've got two websites. You've got the Math in the Fast Lane and My Ed Expert. You want to tell I us do. a little bit about those two <laughs> projects? Susie's tired. Um, the Math in the Fast Lane, uh, Math in the Fast Lane is a is a really a passion project. Um, it's it's hands on teaching. You know, we do sorting. We do great stuff like sometimes, always, never. We roll cubes with problems. So it's very non worksheet based. It's an active classroom. The new Myad Expert thing was an idea I had working on the second book of what if educational authors convened in one place and we put some information out there. So we have STEM people and, and literature people and all kinds of people who are out on the road like I am uh, doing. So the, here's the idea. The person from the podium has some materials for you, you know? So that's, that's it's a work in project, I mean, and in progress. So it's been a really exciting thing to meet other people who write and, and have some wonderful things to post there. So thanks for, thanks for asking about that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what's next for you, Susie? You're working on these two projects. Are you writing as well? Um, what, what are you, how are you spending your time in your day-to-day -day work? Well, I, um, I'm working with the university right now and closing the gaps in three states, which is what my love is. My, my love is um, getting kids who are really not excited about school, totally pumped up about school. So I work in, in largely places where, uh, you know, uh, that that's what I love doing. So I'm working with the university on closing gaps. I'm working, you know, going next week to, um, you know, work with, with teachers. So every week I'm, I'm doing active learning kinds of seminars and things like that. Um, I don't know what the, the, the next book's going to be. So i um, got a couple of ideas on that. Um, and I'll see where I, where I move with that. All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing your ideas. Each episode, we leave you with a question or two to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. This episode's question. First, think about your struggling learners. What did you hear on today's podcast that you can use to benefit your learners' learning? And if you're looking at it from the leadership lens, how can you support teachers um, with some of those strategies? And second, as a teacher, what are your current practices which you would like to upgrade to be more effective for all of your learners?
If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just connect with the resources that Susie shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode three. That's all for this episode. We'll be back soon featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Susie. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.